Welcome to Voices of Baby Loss, presented by me, Caroline Verdon. I'm a broadcaster and journalist, and Jen Coates, who is the Director of Bereavement Support and Volunteering at SANS. SANS is a UK-based charity whose purpose is to save babies' lives and support bereaved families. We also aim to give a voice to parents who've been touched by pregnancy and baby loss. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SANS Charity and on Twitter at SANS UK which is also where you can get in touch with us if you'd like to comment on or get involved in the podcast. We are both touched by baby loss and so this topic is really close to our hearts. Coming up on this week's episode. We said she'd gone to sleep and then followed problems with George wanting to go to sleep for fear that he might die and also he would come into our room in the middle of the night and check that we hadn't died. Because my brother was born we have some pictures from him so we keep them around the house so if I walk into my parents bedroom there'll be a picture in the living room so if I'm watching TV I, I can see him which is really nice. And it was the questions that the midwives would ask at the scans and they would say no is there any history of anything that might go wrong and the answer was no but. Welcome to episode eight, which this week is all about support for siblings, because it can be really hard to deal with our own emotions surrounding baby loss. But then you add in a sibling who is perhaps very excited about the birth of their new brother or sister, uh, and things can get a whole lot more complicated. And then there are also questions that are raised as well when siblings are born later on. And those questions about, well, do you tell your child they have an older sibling? How do you? When do you? And so we wanted to explore just a number of different people's experiences about having a sibling who sadly isn't here. And sometimes very young siblings just by the nature of baby loss. But also one of the things that I really wanted to highlight with the increase in blended families is step-siblings and half-siblings and their feelings potentially um, that could be quite confused in a blended family of whether they actually want a baby brother or sister and that sort of slight ambivalence and then if the baby dies those really complex feelings of guilt and responsibility and I didn't want the baby so now the baby's died type feelings that that children can sometimes have and get very confused about. And do you hear about those feelings a lot, you know, on the support lines? I think we do sometimes, but I think by the very nature of the age and developmental stage of the children who will be feeling like that, they're not the ones that ring the support line and they're probably not going to talk to their parents about it necessarily because they feel incredibly guilty. So I think it's just really important to flag because it's likely to be parents and adults listening that these are some of the feelings that siblings might be feeling. So we've spoken to three different people for today's episode and we wanted to start off with Emma Poor. So Emma is a bereaved mum who has two boys and whose baby Liddy died and she found it really difficult as she describes, you know, answering those questions about why Liddy died and whether they were going to die and all of that sort of very young child confusion Um, about why they haven't met their sister and what happened to her. And she got lots of support from SANS and our bereavement support services team, which is great. Um, And then part of her journey was then writing a beautiful children's book called Where Are You, Liddy? about the questions that her sons were asking and the way that they played out their feelings and their processing of their grief around Liddy. And they were really quite young. And I think it's so important to remember that very young children process grief. Babies process grief. We don't necessarily understand how, but you know that absence is is 
there and is felt? Everything just felt un- unreal, really. And obviously trying to explain to George what had happened to Liddy, the fact that he had a sister and his first sort of questions were, why had she died and where had she gone? And I think as a parent at that point, your overwhelming feeling is to want to protect your child. And so we said she'd gone to sleep and then followed problems with George wanting to go to sleep for fear that he might die. And also he would come into our room in the middle of the night and check that we hadn't died. Then I said she was sick as well. And of course, then he also worried if he was sick or if my husband or I were unwell, he was concerned that we were going to die. And of course, asked the questions, are you going to die? So it was all these big, very big conversations that you may not feel as a parent that you're, you're going to be faced with. It was really hard. We looked for a picture book to try and explain to George death and what had happened. And really at that point, there wasn't anything that George could connect with that he just, if it was a story about animals, he didn't connect with it. He didn't see that as being him or his sister. And in the end, I phoned Sands and had a prolonged period of conversations really in support with them, which was amazing on their bereavement helpline. It was so supportive and helped me to realise how George's concept of death was totally different and didn't even understand what it was at that age and went on to explain to me cognitive developments and why George was struggling and the words that I was using to explain death to him as an adult that we think are softer and we would use in our conversation were not the right words for George to hear and would actually make his sort of anxiety and grief but worse. And so um, I was encouraged to use death died, that Liddy's heart didn't grow properly. That was why she died. And to have those conversations with George and to reassure George that his heart had grown properly, it was fine. He wasn't going to die, that, that Tim's and my hearts were fine as well. And then sort of we started on this journey together as a family. And it was really hard to have the conversations with George at times because he would just jump in and out of playing with his toys and then come straight out with something about or or call one of his toys Lizzie and set up a tea party and want him and I to come and join the tea party and I I specifically remember that in the garden outside and Tim and I looking at each other and finding that really hard to engage in that but knowing that that for George, it was a role play. It was talking about things. It was his way of working through it. And he would draw lots of pictures. He drew pictures of Lizzie. He drew pictures of us all together as a family. And I remember sitting in his bedroom with him and having these conversations about things which we wouldn't have had without him. And I think also helped our grief tremendously as well. George was also at nursery and the nursery were incredibly supportive in in asking how they could help us. And I think I didn't know how they could help us. I just wanted George's routine to carry on as much as it could to keep some form of normality so that he knew that life was still happening. It wasn't all going to collapse. He was still going to be safe. He was still going to see his friends. But he wanted to tell everybody about Liddy. It wasn't a question of him closing down, which is, of course, what my husband and I wanted to do. Naturally, your instinct is to go within yourself and protect yourself. And I think every time we 
left the house with George, or certainly I felt on the sort of nursery run, because we would walk to nursery, I felt like I was going out into a sort of, not a battleground, but a sort of, I, I couldn't protect myself or George once we left the house from the point of view I was wanting to protect George from any questions that might be asked to, to me or by other parents or uh, other peers of his and and also what his little friends would ask me and knowing what I could say to them in that moment not knowing what their parents had said to them and also of course seeing other babies that had been born very you know around that time but then also in August when other when Liddy had been due and all of that was really hard to navigate and I did have some close friends that really helped me with either collecting George from the sort of playground the park just outside the nursery to then take him in so that actually I wasn't faced with the sort of prams and pink blankets and all the all the loveliness that surrounds the birth of a new baby but I just couldn't cope with it at that point and so yeah I think we through having those conversations with George and understanding how his cognitive development was playing this scenario out for him we were able to then go forward together as a family and late some years later Henry was born who is Liddy's younger brother and when Henry was sort of three I noticed that he was starting to ask questions about Liddy and he was having conversations with George as well as me and my husband Tim and again I looked for a book to talk to Henry about his sister and baby loss and again I couldn't find a book that's when I started my journey and Jen and I met after I'd put together a picture book for young siblings which is the story essentially of Henry's and George's conversations and how we celebrate Liddy on her birthday each year so yeah and now, and now obviously the boys are um you know significantly older George is 16 Henry's soon to be 11 and we you know we've carried on you don't ever go come to the end of the grieving sort of process and I've watched the boys their journey as they've got older and how they still very much perceive Liddy as their sister they talk to their friends about Liddy and still now they tell their friends about my eldest George I was wondering if he perhaps he might be more reticent when he met people or ha and actually he's with his his um, girlfriend's he told her fairly early on about Liddy and I, I was really warm to know that he had felt supported enough to talk to his girlfriend about it and wanted to share that. I think it's very hard for children at school to navigate it. And that's cer certainly the experience I've had with kind of both boys, but in a different different setting, because obviously with Henry, I wasn't I hadn't been pregnant in front of his peers or so for Henry it's been very much about when he's gone into each year they're asked to talk about their family and he always talk, talks about Lizzie he says I have a sister and then of course initially his friends were saying no you don't and it was those conversations then and talking to school about it and and his school again have been tremendously supportive in having conversations about that and enabling Henry to talk about it to his to his friends. I can't imagine what it must have been like to have to put your own grief to one side in order to then 
be able to deal with your child grief and help them navigate that. Like when we lost Alex, Alex was our eldest and that brought other things into play, but we didn't, we were able to just be ourselves and we were able to feel whatever it was we needed to feel in that moment. Whereas that must have been really hard because there must have been times where many times where you perhaps felt you couldn't feel what you were feeling or perhaps you had to put that to one side and deal with that later yes very much so I felt I had to keep yeah I had to really push those feelings down so that I didn't scare George I think and so for me I had to wait really until he'd either gone to nursery or until he was in bed at night to let go with the really deep raw feelings of grief where I sobbed and sobbed or went and held her blanket that I part of her blanket that I kept yeah it was really hard and trying to navigate as I say keeping going for him and being able to answer his questions in a sort of calm you know really calm way and I think without dissolving into yeah a complete mess on the floor I think um I'm finding that actually now I'm connecting with those feelings again. I've recognised that my priority was George. And even though there were moments that I took for myself, I guess it wasn't enough of a continual sort of process for me to be able to release a lot of those feelings. And that's actually something I'm working on now, which is a really healthy process for me to be going through now. Um because as a parent, yeah, you do just want to protect your child. I don't know whether I can say I was l lucky enough, but I had two two friends who I had met when I was pregnant with George who had tragically lost babies, their first babies. And they had both gone through their grieving process, shall we say, or those are those first few months in in very different ways to one another and I was able to talk to both of them and somehow find a ground that I was comfortable with for me and for my husband Tim to be able to find somewhere that we wanted Liddy to to rest her special place to to think about a service to think about all the things that just feel so fundamentally wrong to be doing to have those moments with her we didn't take george to to her thanksgiving service and in fact we didn't invite anybody in person to come to liddy's service we felt we just couldn't we couldn't cope with other people's grief as well perhaps i think we we sent everybody an order of service we asked everybody to sort of join with us in their homes or at whatever point they could and i think probably not involving george in that looking back now perhaps if george had wanted to come and we'd given we'd had that conversation with him perhaps he would have found i can't think of the sort of right word really peace or uh, for his perception at that age to see the coffin to see that was to see her he obviously didn't come to the to the hospital we didn't take Liddy home yeah, there wasn't that sort of um, opportunity at that point and so his only sort of connection with her has been the photograph really and the items that we bought brought home from hospital um, yeah, I, th I, th I think that was something that perhaps now I would change for him. But yeah, then it was just a question of almost life was carrying on around us. It just felt so, 
so bizarre that people were just going about their ordinary day life and to me my whole world had just disintegrated um but I had George and I think without him I wouldn't have got out of bed in the morning I wouldn't have I had to get I had to get up I had to be there for him and looking back I often feel that he was our savior in that sense that without him actually things I'm not sure that we would be where we are now we would have gone through the sort of process together that we did that that I would have done the book that all these things that I think now I feel Liddy is and our story has helped others that's just amazing for her and for my boys yeah and connecting I think again with so many families that you know not only are right in that point of that complete no man's land where you just don't know what to do to also a lady who bought the book whose son had died 30, 35 years ago and saying to me that she'd wished she'd had the book then and how difficult she'd found it. In fact, she hadn't talked to her daughter about it, who was born after. And that's all the sort of, I think, the taboos and things that are still very much attached to talking to children about death. And I think now as a sort of, you know, society, we're going forward, hopefully, with being more open about these sorts of things. But ultimately, yeah, it's not something that you expect to have to talk to your child about. Children process complicated feelings through play and through make-believe. And I think what's so beautiful about Emma's book is she illustrates that so well. It's her boy's playing out and acting out their conversations about Liddy and where she's gone and how they want to remember her. But she also illustrates how they puddle jump between episodes of grief and questioning into what's for tea, I'm going to make a mask, which I think is really helpful. And to have those direct conversations with children whilst they're playing and to just to keep an eye out and listen for those times when they might be playing with their toys and you can hear them having conversations with their toys about what's happened, that it's it's a good time to listen and to maybe just join that conversation slightly and understand where they are in their understanding so that you can gently correct any anxieties that they might have or any kind of fantasy. There's a lot of fantasy, obviously, with children growing up which is really important, uh, but equally can be quite distressing for them. With all of the many, many parents that you've worked with who, you know, who also have other children, do you feel that Emma's experience is pretty commonplace? Yes, absolutely. I think leaving a hospital without your baby is obviously one of the hardest things you ever have to do, but then to go home and to have to tell siblings that the baby that you've been gently introducing into conversations and maybe encouraging them to listen to the baby um, or to talk to your tummy you know through that that time suddenly to have to tell them that, that that baby isn't coming home and that baby has died and to introduce such complex concepts like the permanence of death which children until seven eight don't understand the permanence of death anyway so you'll have to keep repeating and having different conversations as your child's understanding changes anyway is is the second hardest thing I think that that parents have to do and we have a lot of calls about that which is why we've produced 
worksheets and workbooks for um, siblings of different ages and stages that are appropriate for their understanding so that it's easier for parents and families and teachers maybe to facilitate those conversations with children by using those worksheets. And we'll, of course, pop the links to where you can find those worksheets. They'll be in the show notes so you can easily find them and download them uh, and use them yourself if you need them. Um, We also spoke to Nihal, who is 16 years old, and he spoke to us about his experience of losing his siblings. So I'm the middle child. The world sees me as a child of one, but in my family, we're a family of five. Um, so we still very much think of my brother and sister as part of the family because they are still, even though they're not with us on earth. My brother died in 2003 after 18 hours. My parents had to turn off his life support machine. Um, I was born in 2006, so three years later. And my sister, she came out of my mum's stomach in 2008. Um, but unfortunately, I never got to meet her because she stopped growing in my mum's stomach. But yeah, we both think of them as still very much here. So you would have been how old when your sister was born? I would have been two. Two. So do you have any memories of that time of of your mum being pregnant? No, I don't. um, We were talking about it and I can't remember anything at all um, from that time. But I can remember, for as long as I can remember, my parents and I having really open conversations about it. I never felt uncomfortable asking them questions about it. It's always been very open. And I think that's a very good thing. I've grown up with it. and it makes it very natural for me to talk about, which I think it should be. Um, so in that sense, I can remember I can remember it all throughout my life. I can't remember the time it happened specifically. But I think talking about it in that sense from a young age is very, very important. I think it's something that lots of parents have the conversation about. Should we, should we, shouldn't we? What should we say? Should we say anything? And yeah. um, it was certainly a conversation my husband and I had. Um, and yeah we decided that we felt it was important that our middle child who is our eldest living child that he he knew all about his older brother when 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 he was born and that his elder brother was a part of our household but we did question things like is it is it too much is it scary for a child to is it too confronting will it make him worry about big things at a time in his life when everything's just magical and play and is it is it too real world what would your thoughts be on that um i can definitely understand where you're coming from it's a big thing and especially at that age but i feel that it's important to tell them from a young age because if you say my parents never told me and they told me now i may feel very angry that they haven't told me and i may feel resentment so i think if you, you you have to be careful, obviously, in the way that you say it at a young age, but I think it's important to grow up with it in that sense. So it's not a shock and you can learn how to deal with it. And so I can remember when I was young, especially when I was around eight years old, I really, really wanted a sibling. I used to beg my parents for a sibling and I used to get really, really upset. Now, obviously, I've come to terms with it and I've gotten used to growing up as an only child. Um, so I, I won't say that it never affected me. But I'm very grateful for my parents telling me and not and not leaving it until much later stage in my life or not telling me at all. What I really loved hearing you say at the very beginning was you said, we're very much a family of five. What do you do to to keep that? What do you do as your family and as their as their brother to make sure that you are this family of five? Um, well, for one, we have, so for example, in the living room, we'll have pictures of my brother. 
Um, there's not really pictures of my sister because considering she stopped growing in my mom's life, but because my brother was born, we have some pictures from him. So we keep them around the house. So if I walk into my parents' bedroom, there'll be a picture in the living room. So if I'm watching TV, I, I can see him um, over there, which is really nice. Mum always said to me, and I used to really believe it. And now it's not that I don't believe it, but I, we still talk about it and say it as a metaphor. But we used to always say the brightest star in the sky is um, all the lost ones in the family watching us. So we used to call it the Vishal star. And even now, although I know that's not real, uh, if I see a bright star in the sky, I always be to my mum, there's Vishal watching us. So I think things like that as well, just to keep it in everyday life so that it's not ever uncomfortable to talk about is very important. And I think I think that's a great thing. When you were talking about um, Vishal's star, it reminded me of the lovely book that we've got called In the Stars um, by a bereaved mum called Sam and her. she wrote it for her children. And it's about her daughter Kitty who died um, just before she was born and talking about them asking questions, you know, where is Kitty? Is she in the stars? Is she in the trees and the wind? And it's just a beautiful way of, and a gentle way of exploring you know, those feelings about where your sibling might be for younger children. Because I think that that's one of the the big things for Sands is often siblings are incredibly young. So their understanding at the time when their their baby died, um, either they they weren't born then or they they were very young when their when their sibling died. Um, and that their understanding changes as they go through different developmental stages. So having resources and conversations to help them understand at a different level every time their understanding changes. So, you know, for example, when they get to sort of seven, eight-ish and understand the permanence of death, that often creates more conversations and more questions. Um, So, yeah, it just reminded me of that book when you were saying about Vishal Starr. It's lovely. No, definitely. I feel like um, exactly what, what I was saying when I was younger, when my parents introduced me to that idea of the Vishal star, I thought it was completely real. And like you said, at around seven, eight is when I really understood that, okay, I don't have a sibling. I was really upset. And that's when I was begging my parents every day for a sibling. And I would cry, I would really, really want a sibling. And then obviously now that I've grown, I've gotten used to, used to life with that one, um, or with the siblings, but just not here with me. Um, but Although I don't know, although I know that that's the star idea isn't exactly real, um, I still keep it with me. And I think you're right, exactly in that developmental stages, but it's still a great idea to have um, just to keep it with you to speak about. We, we also have, um, you can name stars. So we got yeah. a star named the Michelle Betty star as well. That's really lovely. Nice. And we have this certificate in my kitchen. That's another thing as well. So we, we can go and look in the kitchen and we can see that that's always there as well. Mm. We haven't actually looked online in a while, but you can go on the website and you can put in the exact coordinates and you can find it. So we should do that today, actually. What a, what a lovely thing to be able to do. Yeah. And on birthdays, for example, we always make a cake and celebrate it. We go down to the cemetery, um, not just on birthdays, but we, we go down to the cemetery quite a lot and clean the grave and just talk to the grave. And in that sense, so he's always there with us. And my sister as well, even though we can't really do the same, um, we talk about her a lot and say, celebrate the birthday. And I, I think that's very important. How has it been with your friends as you've grown up talking about your brother and sister? With my friends, I mean, now, for example, I've started a new school. So nobody really knows me that well. So they, I have a lot of questions. Do you have any older siblings or younger siblings? Um, and obviously when when I get close to somebody or when I, when I get to know somebody a bit more, I tell them the story. But if you're just meeting somebody, I will say I'm an only child. 
and they for example the other day i got oh, i'm really sorry or isn't that boring and it I, I do i do always think life would be i want my kids to um have siblings for sure and in that sense i get it because i i'm one of the only people i know that is an only child um so i think in that sense sometimes when i tell people I, it doesn't get the best reaction they they think oh it must be a horrible life but like i say i've gotten used to it but with my friends that i know more well and they know my story they've they've always tried to help me through it and whenever whenever subjects like um, my brother's birthday or anything have come up they've they've asked what i'm doing they've said happy birthday and I, that sense my friends are really they really help me in that way i think that's important as well family support is is really important but to, uh, friends as well can make a huge difference do you know anybody else who has lost siblings um my my cousin actually um uh, my first cousin his sister died of cancer um when she was considerably older so she she was 12 years old um but apart from that i don't but like i said he he has amazing memories of her as well and we do the same thing we celebrate her birthday and we'll talk about her all the time um and he, um her mum also has a charity called midi on and on um which is really nice so we'll we'll uh, celebrate and talk talk about the lives in that sense which is really nice and it sounds to me like that's something that's really important to you to to keep those celebrations going and to make sure that those celebrations exist definitely because they're still part of the family on this earth or not they're still part of the family um and that, that can't be taken away can you remember the conversations that you had with your parents when you were small about your siblings um i can remember asking my mum what happened why did this happen um not in when i was younger not in an angry sense why did this happen but out of curiosity because obviously i didn't i didn't fully understand everything and i had a lot of questions um mum and dad they've been very open with me and i've always felt comfortable to ask them questions um but i yeah i always used to ask my mum like how how long was bashar on the earth um what made you have to turn off his life machine um why did it happen and my parents have never not told me the truth which i think i'm very grateful for for sure one of the things that parents often say is that they don't want to upset their children by by showing their emotion in front of them and being upset in front of them so they end up bottling it up and and being upset when their children are in bed or not with them and i wonder whether you have seen your parents feeling very emotional um about your siblings and how and if you have how that's felt um definitely um me and my mum especially we're we're quite sensitive people um and mum i'm i think it's really amazing that she's converted her loss into for example the shell foundation at sands and helping others i think that's amazing but um i've definitely seen so some of the articles she writes and stuff a lot of stuff gets to her in the sense that she's it's amazing that she's doing it but because she's been in that position she can relate and she tells me we're very open about it she says oh, that made that made me really emotional um and it made me cry and so we'll cry together sometimes um but she won't she won't go to bed and not tell me about it and cry by herself which i think is nice because even in situations that are completely unrelated we've got a relationship where if i if i need to talk about something i will tell i'll tell my parents and they'll start crying in front of them which i think is nice especially with this topic because it can be very emotional it's a hard thing to to take and obviously um sometimes my parents won't want to upset me but um i think because we talk about it so much they don't feel the need to to hide it from me they know that i'll 
want to support them instead of I would rather support them instead of not knowing about it. It's funny how um how how much you do worry about that, how much you do worry about I don't want to upset my child and yeah, I, I and imagine. I think if they if they see me upset, they'll be upset. But it's it's also really interesting how it's actually almost the opposite and that that can happen sometimes and actually having your child see you as a parent have real emotions whether that is true happiness or really being sad it it kind of gives them a better understanding of how to then deal with their own emotions growing up and it sounds like you've been given that freedom definitely mum's always said to me mum knows very well when I'm upset and she always says to me, you can cry, like cry, don't hold it in. It's always better to just let it all out. And she said that to me from a very young age, especially younger. I'd be like, no, no, I'm fine. And then I might go up to my room and start crying. But now as I've grown, I've talked to my parents about it all. And I find that so much better. And it actually helps me instead of just going up and keeping it in. So I think that's very important. And I'm lucky to have that because I know um, it's not very common for um, parents and their child to have that relationship. So I think as long as you engrave it from a young age, or even if you haven't, to just to start, um, I think it will really help your relationship as parents and children. It sounds like they've created a really lovely, safe space for all, for all of you, actually, to be able to be open with each other and Definitely and just have. show that emotions are safe, you know, and you come yeah. back from those extreme emotions Definitely. as well. 100%. Uh, Dad, even the other day, he was, he just said to me, he said, life's a roller coaster, but you just... You just have, try and always remain peaceful and you talk to us if you need to and you'll be okay and you'll always get over it and I think that's true that's very true life is a roller coaster but just remember all the times that you have been upset and you've made it through and same thing will happen do you think there's enough support for siblings I think siblings can be overlooked but I do think that there's a lot of support as well for example SANS um, I know the helpline has helped um, loads and my loads of people. My mum, my mum and dad went to Sands events as well and called called Sands when they lost um, Bashal. Um, that's an amazing story. Um, but I do think that their for siblings it can be harder because they haven't, they weren't, they might not have been there. For example, for me, I wasn't there when my brother was lost. Um, so that bit's not taken account. But he's still my brother. We still have the exact same relationship that my parents would have had. We're still part of the same family. So I think in that sense, the support is less, but there is still a lot of support to go to. What would you like to see? Um, just more awareness of, or more siblings speaking about their experiences or more more awareness of what it's like for the sibling and how the sibling can deal with it. Um, and just different stories from different siblings, because I think, I mean, I've always loved in every aspect of, so for example, in education, I think looking to other people who have who have done well or have gotten over something and collaborating that into helping you has been very important so i think the same thing if you have a lot of siblings that can give advice and even if you're not a sibling to give advice on how siblings may deal with it i think that will really help just putting that all together into not a guideline but just to give support he talks really eloquently about yeah. how you can involve children in remembering their sibling in a positive way because it's hard to celebratory way it's hard to kind of wrap your head around i think what is age appropriate and what will be helpful and what will be unhelpful and there are so many lovely things that they have done as a family to make sure they are a family of five but it's also so reassuring to hear how 
well-rounded Nihal is, you know, how he has taken everything on board. He's very well adjusted. He understands what, what's happened because, you know, that's what you ultimately want for your living children. Um, you want to be able to have said those right things. Um, and I think that can be really difficult. And, you know, we heard from Emma as well about some of some of the issues about the words that you use and how you approach the death of their siblings. I think every family is different and everybody needs to use the language that they're comfortable with. And I also think that it's important to think about how literal children are as well and what might be going on in their heads if you haven't been completely clear. So, for example, speaking to um, a parent whose child said, what is happening to the baby's head because they'd been talking about the baby's body and what would happen to having brilliant conversations, you know, explaining what was going to happen to the baby's body and how the baby was going to be buried and they were going to have a service and um, their sibling could write a, write a story or a letter or draw a picture. And because they've been talking about the baby's body, which is something adults do all the time and makes total sense to us. Absolutely. Um, the sibling said, but what about the baby's head? Because they were of the age where... Those two things were, are different. And yeah, don't they're very different the, things. Yeah, exactly. They're learning about their own body and head, shoulders, knees and toes and that kind of thing. So it's all very separate. So things like that and, and talking to, to children about... Um, sometimes people use the term, and Emma talks about this... Um, going to sleep or born sleeping, particularly around stillbirth. And that can be quite anxiety provoking for children who, you know, we spend our lives trying to get them to go to sleep <laughs> um, in the evenings, small children. And, and suddenly that can become a really frightening thing. If you've talked about the baby going to sleep and then the baby's not coming back, then that's a very common response is not wanting to go to sleep or not wanting parents to go to sleep and wondering if they will wake up. So, um, using language like that can be tricky. If you're talking about people becoming stars, then that can be beautiful imagery and really reassuring. But if it's then a cloudy night and you've got into the routine of showing a child of a certain age stars in the sky and then those stars don't appear, that can be quite distressing. So it's a minefield in lots of ways. But, you know, we're here to help and have those conversations um, and, and to talk through different options. And I would also want to reassure families who maybe have used language that has become confusing that there is always the opportunity to make it right. So please don't feel guilty or think you've made it worse because children are always open to those conversations. And as their understanding changes, you can change the language you use and you can reassure them. So please don't beat yourself up if you've used different, you know, different language um, and it's become confusing because it's never too late to make it better. And I think that's really key, isn't it? You know, Nihal talks about how he had different moments in his life growing up where he was going through different emotions and how him and his parents sort of reassessed things and had further conversations. And our final guest is Christopher Somerville, who is now the Scotland Network Coordinator for SANS. But he's also a sibling of loss. And speaking to him, it was really interesting for me to hear how his journey as that sibling changed over the years. So I grew up in a family of five, except that I always knew that it was a family of six children. Uh, and the reason is that I had my eldest brother, Jason, and we knew about Jason, but of course it happened before I was born, so it was long ago history. 
So being children, we never really understood or we would go every year to visit the grave. It was a gravestone of a family that was somehow related to us who'd all died out that we'd never met. So it didn't really mean anything. And yet it was very important to our parents because here was my brother, Jason. And when you're young, anything that happens you know, before you're born is long, long ago. The 1970s were long, long ago to me being born in 1980. So... Um, Yes. So it it just it was there. It was always part of life, but a bit of life that was um, we were comfortable talking about, but was just a bit different to everybody else in that way. And I do remember the question, you know, how many family, you know, how many children are there in the family? And the answer was, is it six? Is it five? What is the right answer in this situation? And my mother told us that, you know, in primary school in the early years, we were all asked at some point to draw a picture of our family. And apparently every one of us at some point said, stuck our hand up and said, um, do we include Jason in this? So I think the, the primary one teacher who had taught us all, I think by the, by the last one, she knew what she was saying, but I imagine it was an awkward conversation, conversation for the first one or two. Um, so I suppose then looking at life at various stages, then maybe I understood a bit more and, um, maybe you hear about it happening to somebody else and you, you've got a connection there and a link or you decide to share it with somebody. But in general, in life, nobody ever asks, hey, do you have a dead sibling I've never heard of? So it doesn't really come up in conversation at all. Um, and at various points, I suppose, I thought, oh, do you know, I understand now. I, I, I actually get it. Um and I think I finally now accepted that I don't understand and that's okay. It's not my story to understand. And my story is a different one. It's the story of a sibling. Um, and it really, it was the birth of my daughter or when we were pregnant with my eldest, that, that it really made sense to me, that it really began to hit. And that's when it changed from something that you know in your head to something that you need to believe in your heart, that needs to be part, you know, absolutely solid with you. And it was the questions that the midwives would ask at the scans. And they would say, now, is there any history of anything that might go wrong? And the answer was no, but, no, but I had this elder brother, Jason, and he died at birth, but there wasn't any issues. There's nothing to worry about. And in my head, I can't remember whether anybody did, but in my head they were saying, are you sure there's nothing wrong? Sure there's nothing we should know about? Maybe there were one or two follow-up questions. And I would say, because I knew in my head, yes, there's no issues here. But deep down then I was saying, well, this has suddenly become really important. This is no longer long ago history. This is something that's right here, right now is affecting me. Was there something that happened to Jason that somehow is genetically as I have carried forward and might impact and I might have to face that same journey and I don't know if I can do it. So that was a real catalyst for me in terms of starting to ask questions and ask questions that I'd never asked before. Um, and for some odd reason that I've entirely forgotten now, I phoned my mum when I was at the back of one of these massive hardware stores near the plumbing section. Um, and I think... We'd maybe just been to a scan or something like that and I needed something dropped in the way home. But I just phoned my mum and I just said to her, look, I'm worried about this. And so she told me more. 
and there wasn't a huge amount to tell and everything I thought I knew was there and it was everything was fine um, the birth went as expected um, the pregnancy was fine the birth was fine right up to the point where Jason was born and there was silence and there was silence from the baby there was silence from the midwife and the doctor and I think my mum remembers them looking at each other and seeing the look in their face and the realisation that this was not right anymore. And so there wasn't anything for me to worry about. But she said to me at that point, she said, look, you're worrying about what might not happen. And then I realised that, yeah, I wasn't thinking about the things that actually were real and happening right here and right now in that moment. And that's when I had to then think about, well, actually, yes, <laughs> you know, we're trying to decorate a room, we're trying to buy a cot, we're trying to do all these other things that need to be done for a new baby coming. And I'm not enjoying that because I'm worrying about this other thing. So I put that worry back and I didn't let go of it. I couldn't let go of it, but I put it back out of the way kind of in reserve on the substitutes bench you'll come out when I need you and not before and that was a very freeing thing to be able to do and I think it's like so many things in life they're really difficult until somebody that you hugely respect like your mother says look would you just do this and then like, okay right well that's fine I have permission to do it I have permission not to worry from the one person who knows what how important it is um, and I think, yeah, I, I don't claim any skill in that or any uh, anything with it. It's just I had responsibility to my wife. I had responsibility to my child. I'm supposed to be being a dad here trying to learn how to do it, and I'm not doing that. So it was like, actually, yeah, let's focus on this instead. Um, so I, I think I did hold on to the worry until my daughter was born and until it didn't all go smoothly. But from my perspective, in my shoes, it all worked out fine. And it was that moment after birth where I could just let it go. And I let it go in tears. When my daughter was born, um, my wife was getting mended. And I was given a little girl to hold this tiny baby. And I just wept. And I wept for many reasons. I wept for joy of having a daughter. I wept for the challenges that my wife had faced in just giving birth and all the regular thing. <laughs> but I also wept because I remembered, well, because I could let go of that worry. Um, I could leave it behind finally that this was a thing. And of course you say leave it behind finally, but then three years later pregnant again, um, <laughs> And it's still there, but it's not there in the same way. It's been dealt with once, it's been fine once, and we can begin to let it go. And um, so in my life, I suppose it's always been this thing that has gone on, but here for, um, you know, there's resolution that I didn't know I needed to have that has finally taken place. Um, and that in some ways allowed me then to think about the other people and to think about uh, other challenges and uh kind of acknowledging Jason much more with my mother and led to a whole lot more conversations. So one of the things that I found really useful was the metaphor that my mother used. And she used the metaphor of a weight that nobody could see and I imagined it like a crystal ball. And sometimes it's tiny like a little marble and it goes in your back pocket. And this is what she carried every day. So this little marble in your back pocket you know, it's generally is not bothering you. Maybe occasionally you feel it, but it's not there. 
but other days it's the size of a an orange and then it's a weight it's significant it's hanging about it's it's always just bugging you on the side it's always you, you're aware that you have to carry it and other days this weight is the size of a boulder and it weighs you down and nobody else knows it's there and so that's one of the things that we hear about all the time is that um you know everybody does we are scared to talk about a loss that somebody has had about a baby that people don't know because we don't want to remind them <laughs> And they've not for a moment forgotten. And it's obvious, it's hugely obvious, but it wasn't even obvious to me having grown up in that situation um, because I didn't think about it because it's a long ago thing with a person that I never met. And so that metaphor, and I've heard others talk about a backpack or talk about things in different ways. And that metaphor carries a lot for me and it helps me to understand. And it means that now when I talk to people, I can approach things differently. It means that I um, I try to say something and normally I try to say something that is a nothing you know it's not going to change the world I'm not going to make any difference to their life but at least I'm going to acknowledge it um, I'm going to say so if somebody says to, if somebody lets me know I can at least say I'm really sorry to hear that that they have a name and repeat the name back to them and that's a very special thing because I know how important it is to my mother and to my family um, and every year we've got a family WhatsApp group and everybody's on it. And every year um, birthdays come round and my mother's extremely good at sending the WhatsApp message to the group to say, hey, happy birthday to whoever it is on that date. And that reminds the rest of us because we're not so good at it to do that. And so she's fantastic. But Jason gets his mention too. And of course, it's his birthday and his death day. But so that's Jason's day comes up. Um, and so it's in the diary now and maybe I can get it in first sometimes and I can get the message sent to my mum rather than her sending it to all of us first. And that's nice because it means that she's she knows that we have not forgotten. She knows that we remember. And whenever I'm over at home, you know, the family graveyard is there. And so I go and visit and I've got various family members from previous generations uh, but there is a gravestone now with Jason's name on it and it's lovely to be able to go and see that point He's such an eloquent speaker isn't he? That's Christopher Somerville uh, That's about all we have time for on today's episode. If you would like to find out more information about how you can help siblings uh, you can of course contact Sands at any time there's details in our show notes about how you can get in touch via email how you can have conversations, how you can find the website uh, and also about worksheets and workbooks that we've spoken about as well Now we like to end each episode with a moment of hope and so we ask our guests for their hopes for the future these are Emma's hopes. Gosh, there's so many things that I could answer to that for parents, for siblings, for the babies that we've had to say goodbye to. I think my overwhelming feeling is not to feel alone and to be able to talk about it, to be given the p permission. And I think hopefully I would hope that we can we can find a way that is easier to be able to connect with our children and to connect with the grief, which is ultimately it is so incredibly painful. I think my hope would be that that you can feel part of the whole community not and not feel that you have to hide away or you don't know what to say. Voices of Baby Loss is an under-the-mast creative audio production.